I feel, I feel that we are in days um, where there is increasing seriousness to what it means to follow Jesus. I watched last night an incredible YouTube clip, which um, I didn't have the courage to share, which is interesting, of a man in his late 70s in a Middle Eastern country preaching on the streets with all of his heart. And he was raw, he was an East Ender, but he was preaching with all his heart about the reality of Christ, about the reality that Jesus is the only way. And he was surrounded by Muslims who were literally uh, screaming at him. Um, young men, strong, big men, were surrounding him, mocking him right in his face, screaming at him. And whoever had videoed it was just bravely continuing to video it. And this, this East End guy was just preaching, saying it wasn't complicated, it wasn't sophisticated. He was just saying, this is the real thing. You're being lied to. If you don't repent, you will go to hell. This is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. And I watched this, and I felt deeply convicted, if I'm honest. And uh, I felt, at the same time, deeply encouraged. That's, you know that strange way, the way God works with us, isn't it? It's, he, he, he challenges. Uh, discipleship is two things. Mike Breen, who's an amazing uh, pastor, he says that looking at Jesus' life, discipleship is both invitation and challenge. He's like a horse whisperer. I've never done horse whispering. We have a vet in the house, brother. I'm told this is true, that uh, a, a technique of taming horses, rather than being just brutal with them, is to, as it were, to draw them in. I don't know much more than that. To draw them in, to whisper to them, I guess. To draw them in, to invite them in. But then at the same time, there's the challenge of making them become actually obedient to what the owner wants. Jesus was like that. Jesus didn't only say, my yoke is easy. That's invitation language, right? Yeah, we love that. Yes, yes, I like that. My yoke is a bit tough today. He's the one that makes it. He did say that. He did share his life. He was invitational. He, today, if you're here and you're heavy laden, he absolutely is the one who says, I want to come and to, to lift that off you. Praise God. Come on, you can do better than that. Praise God. You know there's a, a twist coming. That's right. <laughs> no, you can't get me, Tom. But he, he, he was also, he was the one that said, you have to pick up your cross. To follow me means you pick up your cross. To follow Jesus demands everything. It demands everything. I recently heard a Serbian pastor called Vlada, who preached one of the most extraordinary sermons I've ever heard in, his life, in my life, through stilted English. And all he was really effective, all he was saying, it was very simple at one level, but he was saying, to follow Christ, it isn't this additional thing. It is everything. It demands everything. It is a profound leaving of everything that you've known and a profound 24-hour, utterly, in a sense, intense commitment to following Jesus Christ. Now, he blesses us and he's with us and he loves to fill us. But to follow Christ in an evil, dark world means we are aligning ourselves with the one who they ultimately crucified. We know that, right? And I feel God's been speaking to me and, and saying we need to get ready more and more. I need to get ready we need to get ready. We need to be a people who, who realize that actually the lives we live are not normal. The lives that we have in the East Coast Disneyland where our Christianity is tolerated, where people at most might give us a furrowed brow, that is not normal at a global scale. 
when you look through the last 2,000 years of history, to follow Christ doesn't normally mean that. It normally means that you will at some point probably die for your faith. Now, I'm not trying to be super intense, but I just felt, I felt this is what the Lord was speaking to me about. And I feel, to be honest with you, we've been, we've been at this place today as a site, haven't we? It's been a serious morning, but a good morning. It has felt real. We're aware this morning of the reality of life and death. And I think the Lord's wanting us this morning to realize it's always been that way. It's always been that way. I remember watching this incredible video, I think I mentioned it earlier on, from the Egyptian Coptic Church. A video you can see online, it's breathtaking. And they, you know those, the 21 martyrs who were beheaded a few months ago by ISIS? The Christian martyrs, remember that? And the, these men and women who were interviewed, they were, they were smiling as they were interviewed and they said... Do you know, our church history in Egypt is drenched in the blood of martyrs. It's just, it's always been the way. To follow Christ here means you will probably die. And although it's tragic at one level, at one level it's glorious to God. Because it brings glory to God that as they stood there facing the executioners, they didn't back down. They didn't actually recant. They were able by the power of God, even in that moment, to look them in the eye and say, Do you know what, Jesus is, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I want to spend eternity with him, as we've been learning. The bigger that eternity is weighing in our hearts, the more we are empowered by God to actually make those decisions. The famous twist in that story of those 21 Christians was that 20 of them were known by the Egyptian church. They knew them. They were their friends. They were just poor workers who had moved out of Egypt to try and find work, and then they'd get captured by ISIS and were, were, were beheaded. But there was a 21st man that they didn't know, and what turned out extraordinarily was he wasn't a Christian. He was just working with those, with those Christian refugees. He's just working with them. But this is the incredible thing. As man after man was asked, will you turn your back on Christ? And man after man said, no, Jesus is my father. He is my master. He's my Lord. And as they were beheaded, as they praised God, as it happened, as that happened, the 21st guy who wasn't a Christian said, he, he got converted. He saw what was happening and said, their God is my God. And he was a Christian for moments before he ended his life. I, I feel that the Lord is wanting us to be a church that is, that is ready. That is ready that when you read about the early Christians, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, when you read about the guys who wrote the New Testament, most of them died for their faith. Most of them gave their lives utterly and completely. Now, this isn't a sermon I don't believe about martyrdom exactly, but I'm trying to help us understand that the reality is, is to follow Christ. It isn't a small additional thing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to be totally honest with you. To follow Christ means you follow him totally and completely. You are literally, every aspect of your life now is, he is the Lord of. He is the boss. He's the one. Now, he's a good boss. He's the best boss ever. He's the wonderful king and he wants the best for us. And actually, as Dallas Willard famously said, there's a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a very famous book, and it's a brilliant book, and it's worth reading, but it's very intense. And you think, wow, okay, I'll try and follow Jesus then. And what he, Dallas Willard said about that book, he said, it is true that there is a cost, which we're looking at today. But he said these wise words. He said the, the only challenge with that book is, is that actually the cost of un-discipleship is far greater 
The cost of not following Christ, you think is the easy way, but actually the only way to have abiding peace, abiding joy, abiding love, abiding hope, the only way actually paradoxically is on that narrow, small way, following Jesus who was ultimately crucified. It's the only path. So he's saying actually the cost of not following Jesus, the cost of undiscipleship is actually far greater than the apparent and real cost of following Jesus. But it's this upside-down kingdom that we live in, isn't it? We have to actually give our life away in order to gain it. And that's scary. And I've talked very literally at the extreme. But, but what, what I'm trying to say is, is that actually it's, it's the whole of our lives. Whether it ends in that way or not, it is ultimately a life. Oh, my life is not my own anymore. So what does that mean? And what I want to do this morning is I want us just to walk through a passage in Matthew. This passage that we have before us. Because what we see here, quite amazingly, is... I want to ask one question as we go through this chapter. And it's this. What would it have felt like to follow this man, Jesus? Because he's the same Jesus who is alive today. Amen? Amen? He is here by his Spirit. So when we read in the Gospels that Jesus said, follow me. And that, okay, I'm now a disciple. The question has to be, as it is, what did that actually mean? And, and the question I want to look at today is, what did it feel like? What did it actually feel like on an average day to follow Jesus? So if I had a, a, uh, a, top, a, a title for today, it would be a day in the life of following Jesus. What would it have felt like? And I'm going to look at these three incidents just briefly. I've even got three points. What's going on? This is, the Lord's so kind. Three incidents. Number one. The report about the death of, G- of John the Baptist. And I'll explain who he is in a moment. Number two, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then number three, Jesus walks on water. Now, these are particularly the, the, the second two bits, the uh, stories, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the water. These are stories my kids know. They're these stories that we go, oh, lovely. You know, in, in villages and towns across this great land, we hear these stories in Sunday school. And we go, oh, isn't it lovely? He walked on water. And, uh, and, you know, he fed people. He's a good, and, he, and, and he is, he's a good God. But what I want to show today in the moments that we have is this. If you were a disciple following Jesus on that one day, just that one day, by the end of that day, I think you would have felt following this guy. <laughs> it is, yeah, bonkers. I didn't say it, Joan Reynolds did. Bonkers. Don't strike me down, Lord. But to follow this guy meant your life was so messy, so crazy, so unpredictable. We're going to look at the emotions of what it would have felt like to follow him. So I want us to be thinking, I want this to be interactive this morning. First story, here we go. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his disciples, okay, so Jesus is getting famous. What happens? The local ruler, he says, this is John the Baptist. Oh, well done, Simon. He's typed it up really quickly. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. 
He sent and John and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. So this is the story. This is the opening beginning of your day as it were. You're a disciple of Jesus. You would have known John. He was an amazing man. It says in the Bible that there was no one greater in many ways than John. He was extraordinary. He was a man of, it seems, incredible boldness. A bit like that old man I mentioned at the beginning. Out of love, so bold with people, so kind, so, so godly. He seemed to be a man who, who made so many decisions in his life that probably Tom Shaw wouldn't make. And he did make them, bold ones, confident ones, ones for Jesus, ones for this God. He was giving everything for it. His whole life was poured out. He seemed to be single. Maybe even that was partly because he just said, I just want just nothing to rob me of this. I'm not going to have a wife and a family. I'm just going to live for this Jesus and live for this God who's coming. This is the kind of beautiful, godly man. And yet, what do we read here? We read that because of this Herodias' daughter, I think it was, her wanting him to be killed, or, or rather her, her mum to, to, to have him killed, that in a moment, he's beheaded. He's killed for his faith. This is one of those, it's funny, my dad, he says, this has always got to me, this story. This story always really disturbed me. Why would, why would God allow that to such a good man, such an undignified, horrible way for your life to be, to be ended? No one here probably thinks our life's going to end like that, right? For John, it did. It's shocking. That's how the disciples of day, their, their day begins. That's the news that's coming in, that this has happened and they're, they're learning about it. So I just want to, first of all, just and you know, shout out from where you are. What kind of emotion? Just imagine, this is the question. What would it have felt like to have followed Jesus then? Because all the time I want to know how similar is it for us today? So day, day one we're looking at here, what would have it felt like for, to be a disciple of Jesus and to hear that news? Shout out any emotions you might have felt from, from hearing that news. Terrified, thank you, Joe. Terrified, I guess, because if they've done that to him and the thing that seems to really get Herod is the fact that actually this might be, that Jesus might be John. and So actually any association with Jesus and that John guy is not good news. So terrified. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. Defeated. Defeated. Great word. Thank you. Yeah. Gutted. 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 Thank you, Tom. Next one, sorry. Uh, doubtful. Thanks, Mike. Doubtful. Bewildered. Yeah, bewildered. One more. In bits. In bits. Thank you, Rosemary. So here we go. Following Jesus. That's what it felt like for them. I think it's a fairly good assessment. The first incident in the day. Terrified. Vulnerable. Defeated. Gutted. Doubtful. Bewildered. In bits. If God had allowed that to him, and now I'm following God's son... What does that mean? So first thing I want to just say is this. If you're feeling any of those things, it's all right. <laughs> all right? Turn to the person next to you and say, it's okay. It's all right. You know, to follow Jesus isn't like a plastic thing. You might have come here and you might not be a Christian. You might think, 
we all seem to be all kind of sorted, all these people, shiny, jumping around at the front. Believe me, we're not. <laughs> we're really not. Really not, especially not when your wife's away for a weekend and you've got the kids. I feel terrified, vulnerable, <laughs> defeated. You got me. <laughs> to follow Jesus, it means at times you will feel those things. Let's, let's carry on. Number two, 5,000. Okay. It's a bit of a serious beginning, Tom, but surely now we're going to pull out of the dive and it's all going to be shiny. Well, let's just have a look carefully. Can I just say as we do this, what I'm asking us to do is to use your imagination. It is so profound. As you read things slowly in an unhurried way, the word of God, if you slowly read it and with each verse say, what would that felt like? You're imagining it. Sometimes often I have people say to me, I don't know how to read the Bible, Tom. This is using your imagination slowly and contrasting it with how at times we would do or we would feel or how we think about things. Contrast. Verse 13. Now, in the context of this, this is now what happens. Well, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. I do not blame him, okay? John the Baptist is dead in a graphic, horrendous way. I do not blame Jesus for getting in his boat and heading out of Canterbury, okay? I do not, I just, I need some me time. Anyone here ever feel like that? Yeah, yeah. We, I just need some space. I need some head space. I need to, I need to mourn. I need to actually grieve. Jesus was fully human. It says he was a man acquainted with grief. I'm not just going to sweep this under the carpet and get along and pretend everything's... I'm, I'm grieving. My life is falling apart. To a desolate place by himself. Now look at these next verses. Feel them. Okay? Feel them. I will be honest with you. I love being a pastor and I hate being a pastor at times. Because I, 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 I've got a strong introverted side. I don't have a massive emotional capacity. I feel at times overwhelmed often. I feel like this. Jesus felt like that. He felt like many of you in this room right now. And, and then this is what happened. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him. No, no, please don't, don't do that. They followed him on foot from the towns. And when he, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Oh, we're going to find out it's probably 15,000. 5,000 men, probably 10 to 15,000 people. A quarter of the size of Canterbury just turns up. Um, a great crowd. And look at this. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples, here they are, came to him instead. This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away. I love that. I am so like that. So you've had this awful news. You're feeling all this. And then to your horror, 10 to 15,000 people turn up. Men, women, screaming kids. And the entire day, the whole, it seems for hours and hours and hours, Jesus, whose heart is just breaking out of compassion... Heals person after person after person. He heals them. No doubt they were involved with that in, with him in some way. I don't know what that would have meant, but I tell you what, it would have been emotionally exhausting. <laughs> it would have been overwhelming. It wasn't just having a few people over to the house occasionally. They didn't you know, connect with that well. This is thousands of people. And because I'm a disciple, Jesus is doing this, I'm in. 
Whether I like it or not, I'm in. Right now, I'm in. Now, I'm all Mr. Emotional Healthy, you know what? I've talked a lot about that, protecting myself. And that is important. But I'll be honest with you. When you read, <laughs> when you read the life of Jesus, you do get those moments where he, he, he you know, retreats and he looks after himself. But when you read the life of Jesus, let's just say he was quite active. Relatively active, you know? He was relatively hands-on, involved, from high rulers down to normal people a lot of the time, nitty-gritty, in neighborhoods and streets, involved in people's lives. So now we see Jesus here. He's pouring his, his energy into these people, and the disciples say, okay, well, at least we've done the healing part right. Okay, great. Now... Now we can send them home, okay? Jesus, surely you've been incredibly compassionate in this grief-stricken place. But then Jesus, look what he does. He says to them, but Jesus said to them, um, so so they said, send them away, the crowds away, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now just think about, again, use your imagination. You're a disciple. There's thousands of people. You didn't want to see any of them. But Jesus has led you into being really kind and really sociable and really beautifully kind with these people for hour upon hour upon hour. You probably have people saying to you, oh, can you pray for me? You're with Jesus, aren't you? Okay. You pouring your life out. And then at last you say, finally, now we can just go home. And that Jesus is like, no, this inspired leader. He's like, no, that's not enough. We've got to feed them as well. <laughs> We're going to not just, not just heal their bodies. We've now got to give them food. Now, and... He then says, and you've got to solve it. Now, just think about that, okay? I'm a leader of a church, and I'm constantly aware, sometimes vision can be a little bit too big, or vision can outweigh your resources, yeah? And if you have a visionary leader, someone who you love, maybe it's your husband or your wife or someone else, but they're always like, we could do this, and then this, and then this. That's a challenge, let alone when then they make the promise Let's feed them. Oh, but also, you've got to then deliver it. Do you understand? It's almost like, imagine some crazy leader, and he's just almost forcing everyone to actually do things that seem completely and utterly beyond them. So it's almost like if I just said, we've got to, we've got to somehow feed the whole of Canterbury, and just said to the elders and the trustees, and dig, you've, got to, you've got to somehow make it happen. All right? I just feel it's right. Do it. How would you feel? Okay. How would you actually feel at that moment? This Jesus that you love, his vision is so huge, but ultimately he's then making you... F- Let's just have a couple of, couple of suggestions. How would you feel at that moment? Angry. Angry, thank you, Rick. I would have felt angry. I'm sure I would have done. Any other thoughts? Perplexed. Perplexed. What is he doing? Resentful. Resentful. This is good. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Doubting his sanity. <laughs> Doubting his sanity, for the record. Very good. Tired. Tired. One more. Just can't do this. Yep. Just can't do this. I think people would have thought, do you know what? I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus anymore. It's actually it's kind of interfering with my life. <laughs> I want to go and play Xbox. I want to go and chill out with my girlfriend. I've got to go and hang with my parents. Do you understand? I mean, it's just, it's amazing to follow Jesus 
was so uncomfortable, I think, in many ways, so challenging. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said to them, said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, you've done everything, and now you've got to clear up Glastonbury. Okay? A mini Glastonbury. Anyone here like doing that kind of thing? I don't. Not many hands in the air. Oh, one, two. The idea of doing all of that, feeding everyone, healing them, being involved. And then, and then we just eat all oh, 12 baskets, and that sounds all terribly polite. I get the idea. It was carnage. You know, when families eat, it's carnage. The house that awaits Josie when she gets back this afternoon isn't what it normally looks like. Let's just say that, okay? Right now, it's a little different. It's a little bit more creative. Because feeding three kids. There's crumbs everywhere. It's crazy. And I get stressed and angry and, oh, inside. And, of course, I never express it. But I just give it all to Jesus and it just goes away. But what I'm saying is I would have... There's 15,000 people, okay? Now, this is the amazing thing is, it said previously in a, in a chapter, there is it, bear with me, here it is. Chapter 11, this is, and this is really important. Chapter 11, Jesus says this. He began, verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done, uh, that had been done there had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. So what he's saying is, these places I've already been pouring my life into, nothing's been happening. All the mighty works that I've been doing, raising people and healing people and moving there, but people are not repenting. They're consuming the miracles, they're getting the healing, they're coming for the crowds and the razzmatazz, but they're not repenting. He's just been saying that. Do you understand? So that's important because now he's in another place where he's got another 15,000 people and there's very likely none of them are going to actually follow him. And he knows that. But he's still compassionate. He's not like, I'm compassionate if it converts into an investment. I'll disciple them if these people then are really, you know. He, this God, this Christian God who is so different to every other God, he is outrageously generous. He's pouring hours, days, Months of his life into people who are not even repenting. He's healing their bodies, having miracles happen, limbs probably grown, and they go, thanks, mate, see you later. Can you imagine the emotional exhaustion that Jesus would be feeling and his disciples as they see this, and there's another, it's happening all over again, and they're scrabbling around people's feet, picking up all the stuff, knowing you're going to walk away. You're not even going to probably follow this guy. You just want the consumer good. You just want to come and consume. You want to come and grab and then have your own life. Imagine what it would have felt like. Those 12, we think those big, nice 12 baskets. I think they would have been like, flipping 12 baskets. We've done all this work for people who are probably not even going to repent. Jesus repeatedly said, most people won't follow me. He said, that's the paraphrased version. People love to see a miracle. They love to have a bit of this, a bit of that, a little bit of power, a little bit of that. Ooh. But most people... Do not want to actually follow him. To be a disciple meant that you were probably on your knees at those moments. You were serving. You were the last one there. You were overlooked. These people stuffing their faces, healed bodies, and they're going to walk away from Christ. Very likely. Unless 
miraculously everyone converted and it was different to everywhere else. That's what it would be like to follow him. So with that in your mind, any more thoughts as to how you would have felt as you scurried around picking up the tidbits? Any more thoughts, emotions? What's the point? That's so good. I hope I'm just building everyone up here this morning. It's great to follow Jesus. Hard-hearted. Yep. Amazed at the miracle. Amazed at the miracle. One more. Deluded. 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 As in, who's deluded? Oh, maybe they are, yeah. So, to follow Jesus. This is all just one day? You feeling the emotions? Yeah? This is the question for us. How similar is our life as a disciple? So, what I'm saying is, we dare to use the D word. Right? We dare to use the D word that we, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Whew. Okay, that's a big deal. I'm learning slowly. Because to be a disciple when Jesus physically walked the earth meant these things were in your soul at times. It meant you had to time out. I've got to go over here. I'm going to blow a gasket. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let rip with Jesus because I'm, I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I don't get this. Let's have a look at one more incident. Walking on the water. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Oh, okay. Interesting. Wonder what he's up to. Jesus seems to always have a plan. And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And, Jesus, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. He took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So here's the third final incident of one day with Jesus. Jesus now sends people out onto the boat. And he goes off to pray. And what seems to be happening in this incident the fact that Jesus then stops the storm like that, yeah, as we've just read, it seems to be that he at the very least knew that a storm was coming. Could I even suggest he made a storm happen? Who knows? The fact that he can stop it certainly means that he could potentially, if he wanted, as God has started it. So the basic idea is these guys have had a day in the life of following this guy. And rather than like, well done, boys, come on, you know, like the apprentice when you've done well in the team, we've got organized a spa day for you. He's like, there's one more little element of this training I want to just bring your way. There's still a few more hours in the night. We could do some more training of what it's like to follow God. You up for that? Well, they have no idea that's what's happening. He's getting them into a boat. What a kind God he is. Get into this boat I have for you. What a nice father. Here it is. All nice and wooden. In your jump, in your pop. There you go. Off onto the Sea of Galilee. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Just have a little pray. Catch you up. 
Now listen, can you imagine? It says he came in the third watch. Anyone help me here? Anyone know? Three o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock, very late anyway. So let's just say he sent them off at 10 at night. I don't know. For hours and hours and hours, they are in pitch black in the middle of a sea with huge, crazy waves happening. Now, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I love the sea on a sunny day, you know, Tankerton, dip my toes in. The idea of actually being genuinely at sea freaks me out. Totally freaks me out. I think if you've ever talked to a fisherman, genu- I've talked to a fish- real fisherman who go out to sea for, for weeks, it's probably the hardest job in the world. It is the sea, for, you know, for, for centuries, the sea was not seen as this nice thing. The sea was seen as the killer. That's why in Revelation, actually, it talks about there being no more sea, and we go, oh no. And actually, for the vast majority of history, people go, thank God. The sea has taken my grandfather. The sea took my father. The sea is the killer. Now, seas, seas are killers, as we've been hearing just even recently. They, 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 they are treacherous. And these disciples are left to go into a storm in pitch black for hours. Now think about this. This is your God. This is not comfortable, right? You don't want to hear this. But I tell you what, if you're feeling like you're in a storm, whatever it might be, can I just say with all love that actually nothing's changed? And the kindest thing I can do is rather than saying, so I want to be sympathetic. I've got my own storms. But rather than just saying, oh, you poor thing, that's an extraordinary, unusual thing. The honest truth is, as you follow Jesus, you will always be going through storms. That is actually true. But the glorious truth is, is do you know what? You go through storms anyway. And when you follow Christ... Guess who ultimately always comes through in the end? It's him. So this is the situation. He's in these storms. He, now let's think about this. If you're a parent, I find this really provoking. Because one of my biggest objectives is pain avoidance with my kids. And not to be patronizing, but even with the church. You know, you're not, you're not my kids, but I love you dearly. I really do. I pray for you a lot. I, I so love being part of this church. I, I love it with all my heart. But I'm often thinking, how can I avoid pain? Because the invi- you know, following Jesus by invitation, right? Oh, but Tom, there is the challenge. And I don't like to challenge much. I like to people please. I get but Jesus, he's just what he's just praying, going, another couple of hours, I think. They would have been terrified. They would have been terrified going through what they would have done. Night, hour upon hour upon hour in that darkness. And then, when he does float across the water, he seems to almost, not quite rebuke them, but there's almost this question of, take heart. Are you afraid? Don't be afraid. And you think, well, Jesus, the reason I'm afraid is because I'm in a tiny boat in the pitch black at three in the morning in a massive storm. That's why. And you weren't here, Jesus. That's why I'm afraid. Any emotions now? When Jesus floats across as a ghost and they are genuinely terrified. Any thoughts about those few hours in that boat, what that would have felt like? 
more bewildering. <laughs> it's a lot of... Uh, it would have been bewildering, yeah. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? I mean, they may not have realized Jesus was connected at all, I guess. They would have just been in this storm and thought, Jesus isn't here. He luckily didn't get on the boat, I guess, until he came across. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Brenda. Deserted. Deserted. Absolutely. One Where are you? Where are you? That's right. One more. This is the end. This is the end. That's right. He says, doesn't he, here in verse, verse 31 to Peter, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? <laughs> it's harsh. I think. Do you know what I mean? Peter's getting overexcited. The point, I don't think, was really that Jesus was walking on the water. My, my feeling is probably it's just that he's coming to, to rescue them. And because he's God, he can go, I'm going to go direct. And over he goes. But Peter's like, it's almost like he's more, he's like, he's more interested in the walking on the water bit than in the fact that Jesus has come to rescue them, which I kind of get. I'm like, Jesus, you're floating. What? Yes, I know it's you, but you're floating. And I, I don't, but this is what I love. This is, I, I'm speculating, okay? I'm letting the Bible stir my imagination. I wonder if when G- Jesus said, right, now enough's enough, I'm going to go and end this, this storm. If he would have zoomed over, planned to zoom over and go, guys, I'm here, well done, you survived it, stop storm. Peter then puts a spanner in the works by going, I want to I do this. I want to do this. Now, I don't know. Maybe Jesus knew that and was like part of the plan to lure him out, to sort of test him. But I don't think, I think Jesus, in his kindness, was like, go on then, great idea. Why not? Yeah. Come on. I think that's probably what happened. I might be totally wrong. But I think probably that he just loved the fact that Peter was just like getting in the atmosphere, you know? And, and I think it just happened spontaneously, is my own assessment. And I think the main point of the story is not so much that, you know, Jesus can walk on water, maybe in the new heavens we can. I don't know. I think the main point is actually is that Jesus was coming and saying, trust me in the storm. It wasn't the mode of transport. But do you see, what I said, this little detail here, it's the kindness of Jesus. I think Jesus, you see, sometimes in our life, we can think following Jesus is just about, it's about obedience. It's only about obedience. It's me hearing Jesus for everything in my life, and then I obey. And it, it kind of is, but it's also about us talking to him. We have a God that, he, he, he sees us as children. It's a weird relationship. If with your children, all they do is live to get orders. Yeah? What should I have for my tea, Dad? Cheese uh, on toast? I don't know. It's a two-way conversation. So this discipleship here, even though there's this huge challenge, we see this wonderful moment in this dark place where actually it's amazing. I love it that Jesus honors Peter's suggestion. I love that. Now, I believe God is sovereign, God is in control, and da la la But I also, I see that discipleship means that he wants it's like he almost wants our ideas. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to be those who, who don't just obey, but also we are involved in talking to him as a father like no other. This is our God. This is our God. So by the end of that day, Jesus had saved you from the storm. You finally make it to the other side. And they worshipped him. And we're going to worship him in, in the next moment or two. But maybe it's true to say that you're now emotionally more in touch 
with what it felt like to genuinely be a disciple and to worship him in the context of those emotions rather than worshipping him thinking to follow Jesus is just something I occasionally do. And this is the reality. Is I don't know about you, but when I think about actually what it would have been like to follow Jesus when he was physically on earth, I find, although it's messy and confusing and bewildering and kind of painful in a way, suddenly my messed up, unneat life, which has got some great amazing elements, but is filled with confusion, filled with question marks, filled with pain, filled with anger at times, filled with frustration and, uh, why? Suddenly I realized, you know what? In a way, it's how it's always been and it always will be. If you're not a Christian here today and you're thinking, I want to follow Jesus, what we're trying to show, I guess, is this, is to follow Jesus does not mean that then you float through life protected by all the bad stuff. But what it means is, see, this is what I'm trying to say. If you think your life following Jesus should be, now I'm following Jesus, it should be all neat and successful. So if you're a mum or a dad, you should be a brilliant mum and dad. If you're in your workplace, you should be the best teacher. and the be- There's that pressure you can feel, because I'm a Christian, my life should be sort of storm-free. It should be like I'm just constantly able to give wisdom to my non-Christian friends. I should be constantly able to do these things and just be different. And of course, we're called to be different. But what I'm trying to say is this. I believe the only actual promise ha, you get when you follow Jesus, do you know what the actual only promise is? You do not get a promise of health, wealth, or prosperity. You do not get a promise of brilliant friends will never let you down. You certainly do not get... A, Um, promises of a church that will always serve your needs and and always be there for you. You do not get any of that. You do not get uh, a promise that you'll be healed when you're ill. You do not get any of those promises, not a single one. There is only one actual promise, I believe, that you get, and this shows it, and it's you get Jesus. Hallelujah. You get Jesus, because he's the only constant thing through it. He's the one. And what he wants to say to you is, for those of you who feel like you're failing this morning, you're not failing, Okay. You're here, you're following him as best you can and praise God because if you'd lived with him physically as you now live with him spiritually, it's always felt messy, it's always felt broken, it's felt confusing but when all that settles, actually, ultimately, you know he's real. You know he is God and there will come a day, hallelujah, when every single tear will go and every single pain and confusion and weird element of our life will be a thing of the past. Hallelujah. It really will happen. But do you know what? We can wait well when we taste what it feels like to actually walk one day, just one day with Jesus.